Let's see what the stew has for us today. Welcome to the Gnomecast, Gnome Stew's tabletop gaming advice podcast. Here we talk with the other gnomes about gaming things to avoid becoming part of the stew, so I guess we'd better be good. This episode is brought to you by our awesome Patreon backers like the courageous Craig Dedrick, the egalitarian Erica Von Barbergris, and the mischievous Michelle Shepherdson. Can, can you say that name again? Erica Von Barbergris. I'm, I'm looking at it, and I'm like, I'm impressed that you said it that way. <laughs> Erica Bond has been one of our long, 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 long-term Patreon supporters, so he, he's been here since the beginning. Yeah. And I think the last time I had the name in the list of Patreon subscribers, it was a little bit more um, phonetic, so I, I've, I've pronounced it before. <laughs> Maybe not today, but before. <laughs> today, we have myself, Ange, along with John Arcadian and Chris Sneezek. And we're going to talk about running a game from nothing, i.e. those times when you show up to a table without a clear plan of what's going to happen and how to make that work as a GM. Before we dive into that main topic, though, let's ask our Get to Know a Gnome question. And since we're going to essentially talk about improv GMing, how about hearing about a time where either of you or me ran a really successful game uh, completely off the cuff? And John, I'm going to start with you. Oh, you start with me because you know I never prepare for anything. Nope. <laughs> um, yeah, I like. I, I think that is just actually my default style is uh, seeing what happens. Like, I, I always prepare a little bit of stuff, but um, I just got so in love with improv GMing that at one point I started running games at conventions called Whose Game Is It Anyways, where I would just bring, bring a little whiteboard and I would have everybody suggest one element. And then I would build the game from that and just throw it all in there and together. And, you know, people would have steampunk fairies, a, a necropolis shopping spree, uh, mystical gorillas, you know, just all sorts of weird stuff thrown together. And it's like, all right, what do I do with this? And usually I just kind of take, you know, five minutes and, and with my little bag of secret ingredients, plot out a potential background static story, and then I run with it. And one thing I found that is wonderful about that, players get so happy and so excited when they see, like, that's my idea, that's my idea. They said the name of the movie in, in the movie, you know, like, they just get that, like, joy seeing their thing come to life because they know they actually have an effect on the game world, even if it's in a very meta way. Uh, so I, th I think that's probably my, my biggest improv GMing thing that's been blatant, you know, not the times that I'm like, oh shoot, I should have prepared. Uh, does everybody remember what happened? Yes, and then... <laughs> How about you, Chris? Strangely enough, I, I do a similar thing that John does. I will ask people, like, give me one thing at the table, but I suppose, like, uh, one of the most interesting or impressive, I mean, or off-the-cuff momentary things I've ever done was at, at the QCC, the Queen City Conquest, a, a bunch of years ago. I think it was the second year it ran, so it was like five years ago. Somebody didn't show up to run a Shadowrun game. So I these people paid for these tickets, and uh, that's when we were selling tickets for money. So I, I walked over there, and I'm like, well, I'll run the game. I don't really know how to run Shadowrun, but we'll play Fate. And I know the setting well enough that I can improvise on top of that. So why don't each of you give me an element and I will weave that into a four hour Shadowrun game, which I did for four hours off the cuff <laughs> with no prep and having no idea I was going to run Shadowrun until five minutes before I started running a Shadowrun game. And, and to that point in my entire life, I have never run a Shadowrun game either. And those people really enjoyed it. So there That's you go. That's awesome. I mean, I'd read the, I read the setting and, and, all sorts of other things, like multiple, multiple times. And like, I'm fairly familiar with cyberpunk and I'm very familiar with fantasy. So, you know, once you have all that stuff together, it's, it's not very hard. Yeah. What about you, Ange? 
So one of the uh, one of my my favorite games that I ever ran in this style was a Monster of the Week game, where I had two players. One chose the expert, and the other chose the wronged. And in you know the character connection setup, they decided that the expert was the aunt. And the wronged was her niece who had been sent to a juvenile mental health facility as a six-year-old for murdering her family. Hmm. But when they were setting up those connections, it turns out that it wasn't the child that murdered her family. It was the fae that was trying to get back at the expert. And the wronged didn't know this. She didn't know that her aunt was the reason her family was dead. And once they gave me that connection, I'm like, oh, this whole game is going to all, all be just, just be about the Fae messing with these people. And I was actually able to take the elements that they gave me and like subtly work them in so they didn't realize exactly what was going on until the game, you know, ramped up further and further. And then at the end, after they, they defeated the monster the Fae had sicked, sicked on them, and then she, the Fae had taunted them and then disappeared into the Aether. The, uh, the wronged just looked at her aunt, broke her magical sword, threw it on the ground, and walked off into the night. And it was like, it was just like such a like movie ending. And like, I don't think I would have come up with that if I'd, I'd been, you know, planning it. You know, if I'd set up, set this up ahead of time, it was all based on what the players were giving me at the time. And it was, it was one of the best games I've run, I think. So let's move into the main topic. Every GM knows they're going to have to, you know, be able to adapt and improvise their game as they're running it. But it takes a certain kind of bravado to step up to the table with nothing, with the barest elements ready and turn it into a full game. Most of the Powered by the Apocalypse games have, you know, that I run especially, have no story prep. And I know both John and Chris do similar things, as I just said when we were talking about it. So I thought it'd be fun for us to get together and just share tips and tricks on that style of GMing. I think that the first, the first aspect of this that I want to touch on is genre. I think you really have to know the genre that you're running and the tone of that genre, if you have those down, it gives you a good backbone, you know, for running those games. What What are your thoughts on that, Chris? Well, uh, genre is very, like, understanding genre tropes is the is the thing, and you can do that in a number of ways. You can go to TV tropes and see all the things for the genre that you want to run. You can also just watch or read or view or whatever your methodology, listen to a ton of the stuff that uh that you're trying to run a game for and that will kind of inundate you with what is going on as far as like storytelling goes in those genres by you know people who actually get paid to do this stuff you know so they're ostensibly experts at these things <laughs> i mean we can argue about the, the 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 quality or whatnot but you know people pay them money to do this stuff so we can assume that it's probably you know generally decent those are the those are the two big things i think tone is less important because in a genre you can have such a variety of different tones but understanding how like a tone feels is important, but that is slightly outside of uh, that is separate in a lot of ways from genre. See, I I, I kind of disagree on that one. I I think tone is incredibly important. Now, you, yes, 
you can definitely have a wide variety of tones in things that have the same genre, but you as the GM need to know the tone that you're going for. Well, like I said, it's separate, but you also need to know it. But I, I think genre and tone are two different things. Okay. I, I think they're, they're, they're intertwined in my mind. What are your thoughts, John? You know, I, I would actually kind of agree with Chris on this because, and I know you're COVID known, so you're going to be like, well, a murder attempts inbound. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, uh, because I mean, there are, so I, uh, I played in many punk games and many uh, Call of Duty games at Origins this year with my friend, and they were vastly different, vastly different sort of Cthulhu-esque sort of things, and vastly different ways to take the kind of punk genre there. So, I mean, you know, knowing your genre, it's it's still kind of a large sandbox, like, you know, and I guess it depends on, you know, how you define genre, like, Mm -hmm. you know, Firefly Space Adventures is one type of genre, you know, tramp freighter sort of stuff, whereas Farscape is similar, but with aliens, you know, there are a lot of different genre constraints coming in the moment you, you know, have your Dargos and your Aaron Sons and your Rigels and stuff in there. But then again, Star Trek is a completely different genre there too. And now I'm going to go back and say, I agree with Angela on this because (laughs) the genre that you choose, the tone sets it, you know, like the, the tone is kind of built into that because if you pick a big enough, broad enough genre like space games, what's the tone? That's going right. to depend on if you pick Firefly, Farscape, or Star Trek on those. And when you're doing a real big improv game, when you're not really sure what's happening in sandboxing, knowing what kind of elements you kind of have to pick and pull from, you know, what, what are the Lego pieces you have to build into stuff, even though you don't know what you're building until you get there? That is a big upfront choice you kind of need to make. I agree with that. It's important to set the expectation for the tone up front. Yes, absolutely. But like I like like I like I generally feel like a genre tropes for certain things will uh I don't know, the tone and genre is so they they are intertwined but they're also very different. Like you just slide the scales and that will create a different set of expectations. I think why I conflated them when I was setting up our, our you know what we're going to talk about is because as a GM, you need to know the genre, but you also need to know the tone that you're going to be bringing to the table. I just saw, uh, last night, I went to see Spider-Man Far From Home. Mm-hmm. And as as both Chris and John know, I love me some MCU movies. Mm-hmm. Because they hit that sweet spot for me in both genre and tone. With superhero games, you need to know the tone that you're going for because tone can be all over the place in the superhero genre. Watchmen is very different from the Batman TV series from the 60s. And yes, you could tell people you're going to run a superhero game, but if they show up to the table wanting to play the silly Batman from the 60s and you're trying to do the Punisher, you know, you've you've got some issues that you're going to have to address. So I agree with Chris that you need to know your tone and you need to establish it right away with the players as they're setting things up. It's interesting that you mentioned, since, since we're talking about genre and, and tone, you mentioned Watchmen and then you mentioned Batman 66, which while those are both ostensibly superhero stories, they're both different genres. One is a, uh, one is a farce or a comedy and one is a, an investigative character drama. 
Exactly. But again, that, that comes down to what your defining genre is, because superheroes are a genre. Yes. But so is superhero farce, so is superhero drama. Correct. Like, yeah, and it depends on, you know, like, it, it also depends on the perspective somebody else is bringing to it as far as what genre is, because there are plenty of people who lump all superhero stuff together. And it's like, we all know that that's not true. I I actually consider superheroes a, a trapping that can be put over the top of other genres, but that's kind of getting further into the weeds on that topic than I think we need to get to on this well, one. Actually, Spider-Man 2099 is very different from Peter Parker's Spider-Man. It's, it's <laughs> funny that you say it in, in comic book by voice, because it's actually true, right? <laughs> I don't. I don't know if it's too far afield because these are these are important things to understand if you're going to improvise, right? Like, yeah, like superheroes is a genre, but then there's also when you start mixing genres, you get new stuff. So, mm-hmm. and like to John's point, like there's a and to your point, like you, you, trappings, tropes, they're in the same realm of what we're talking about, right? Like superheroes overall have a certain set of tropes that we expect. Like we expect costumes in some way, shape, or form. We expect some kind of like superpowers or at least people who have high end abilities, right? Mm-hmm. But after that, like there, there's probably a few other things there. But after that, like we get into the real like mixing of genre after that. Like pretty much every MCU movie is almost a different, different genre. Yeah. Even though they're all superhero movies. Like for instance, the Spider-Man ones are essentially um, teen drama, like a John Hughes movie. Plus, you know, a, a Marvel movie, plus a, in, in some ways a comedy, although the last one wasn't as much comedic as it usually is. So uh, there you go. Like, th- that, is, that is the thing about genre. Like, how do we yeah. define genre? Like, there are, I don't know if it's about defining genre as much as, like, there are genres and then the, the subgenres and the mixing of genres. And then once you start adding all those tropes, you get the thing that you're going for. I, I think it's sort of about setting the expectations in a broad way so that when you are doing all that improv, every player is still in the same sandbox. Mm-hmm. Yes. And and ultimately what it boils down to is if you are going to run a game without prepping ahead of time, you need to know the genre that you're running it in. And make sure everybody else knows. I, I think you can I think you can take them a lot you yes, you need to get the players to understand what genre they're they're playing in, but I think you can take them along in the journey and help them get into it as you go. But you as the GM need to understand that genre. You know, you, you need to be comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm I'm generally not going to run a game that's based off of martial arts kung fu movies, because that's not a genre I'm comfortable with. But, you know, give me, give me your teen angst superheroes and I'll totally jump into that. Mm-hmm. The next thing I think that's super important is um, the characters. You need to understand who the characters are and what is important to them, which also includes what's important to the players and what they want to get out of this game. But if you don't tailor it to the characters that the the players have at the table, I think you can, I think you can, it, it won't be as impactful as it could be if you're, you're hitting those points that those players and characters want to see, if that makes sense. What are your thoughts on that, John? Um, to me, the characters are the biggest, you know, sort of thing that, that you have to rely on in an improv game. Like, knowing that players want a certain thing means if you don't have anything prepared, you're now free to actually bring that in. You know, I, I have had players who are 
at all ends of the spectrum, you know, very combat focused, very kind of I want to chew on the scenery, very I want to delve into the, you know, what's going on behind the scenes and, you know, what the intrigue is and I want to like have big political effects. And when I don't plan anything for games is when I, I kind of have the most success bringing all those disparate type of players together because I can see who at the table, you know, at whatever session is kind of jonesing for their time in the spotlight most. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I have been a big fan of tracking players and their motivations, and I've made a, a lot of aids for myself to kind of like, you know, write down, okay, here's what Lurus wants from this one, here's what Launcher wants from this one, like, you know, here's where these characters are going, and, and I have really detailed bits on that, and then I have, like, little bullet points on everything else just sitting aside, but I'm like, eh, I'll figure that out, like, you know, because if, and, and, and I've written about this many, many times, if they're sitting there with an audience in front of the king and they're looking and, and somebody says, I want to make a, uh, a check. Uh, who around here looks suspicious? Like, what about the princess? She hasn't talked. And I go, oh, well, now the princess is suspicious. Now maybe she's plotting. Now maybe that's happening. And, you know, while some people will be like, oh, but that kills the verisimilitude of the game. Well, the verisimilitude of the game doesn't exist until you as the game master create it. Everything that's happening in the background, mm-hmm. no matter how well written down it is, no matter what source book you're pulling from, doesn't actually exist until it's right in front of those players' eyes. So why, why like be beholden to what somebody else wants from that if, if this player has suddenly fixated on the princess and, and they make a good enough role and you say, yeah, yeah, you see something there. She's got a, a flask in, in her pocket, petticoat pocket, and she's just keeps touching that, you know, maybe that's poison. Maybe she has, like, a drinking problem. Maybe there's something there. But, like, you you can kind of, like, put out those little breadcrumbs and then see how they interact. And, and, you know, for the person who's like, oh, I want to dig into the intrigue, suddenly that's their time to shine. Suddenly that is theirs, right there. And you have no idea what's going on. You just have to kind of be able to be like, yep, player X wanted Y, so I threw in Y. And now we're, we're moving along, you know, to Z. And sometimes the players will come up with a better idea than you had to begin with. I had a Doctor Who game I was running once where a character who had lost their uh, vortex manipulator, basically to a one night, a pretty one night stand, was in the middle of dealing with the situation where little time rifts were appearing all over San Francisco. And, you know, I had a vague reason in my head of why these were happening, but all of a sudden the player turned to me and, and she was like, oh! Could this be happening because somebody stole my vortex <laughs> manipulator and doesn't know how to use it properly? And I was like, yes. yes, because that was more interesting than what I had written on the piece of paper. Was was that the one that I was in there as the veterinarian? You didn't let me tame that dinosaur because I couldn't roll well enough? Uh, it was a similar scenario, but I think it was a different group Still of players. Yeah, I know you came <clears throat> so close. <clears throat> so close. What are your thoughts on, on, on characters in relation to improv Chris? I mean, it's just another set of tools and elements that you can utilize to build out the game, like to help facilitate the game and create drama, which is in conflict. So, I mean, like they're, they're very useful. Like that's, it's uh and in fact, since those are the player characters often and the people that they're, that the things that they care about the most, like whatever's related to them is the most important part of the improv i mean the spotlight should be on them mostly the the plot should revolve around them if possible regardless of whether it's a a one shot or a campaign that you're improvising which yes you can improvise campaigns it's a it's doable thing it's a little harder but it can be done uh, so that's, that's pretty much the whole area of peaks isn't it <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, the the Airy Peaks was that for the most part. Uh, that's how it got developed. I mean, I had a, a web map of like 33 areas which had names but no descriptions for them. And as we played, like, I would take 15 minutes every week to like prepare for the session and then we played. Here's a question with improv and campaigns. Did you write down what came before so you could build off of that? Or did you just count on your memory being able to, to pull it out? I mean, like, anything that's played already, like, you can write it, like, you can, you can write it down or whatever. I mean, I don't think I did. I think we just, I don't think I did. Like, I, I don't highly recommend that. I do that now. Like, there was a lot of, like, um, remember what happened last time? Questions? Eh, there wasn't even that many of those. So, uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't think I wrote down anything for, for three years we played, and I don't think I wrote down a single thing. I know one of my issues as a GM is the, uh, not accuracy, but, but if I put a specific thing out there, I want to make sure that when I call back to it, I'm I'm being correct. And most of the time, the players don't really notice or care, just as long as you're in the right ballpark for what you're referencing back to. Oh, no, like my thing was coherent. Like I remembered all the stuff. I had stuff on note cards that so here's the only thing that I took notes on was the 15 to 30 minutes before we played and the um, notes that I took while we were playing. And that was enough for me to remember what was going on. And, you know, player memories are everybody's memory, not just players. Player and GM memories are piss poor. Like, <laughs> it, mm -hmm. this is such a, a thing that happens there at the time that you're busy creating as well as consuming. It is not easy to just retain all of the, like, every little detail in a nice linear fashion. That just means not how brains work in, in this kind of thing. So it almost doesn't really matter until it matters, you know? I mean, right. how many times, like, I, I'm horrible about this, but I'm like, wait, oh yeah, you had that person who gave you the quest, and then as we start talking about it, I'm like, yeah, he was doing this, or like, no, it was she. She was a, a courier for this company. I'm like, that's right, okay. And then it starts jogging those little bits, and most people don't really care they're like all right now we're back on the path now we have this new kind of thing we're moving forward with sometimes you get people who do but but most of the time it's it's pretty okay you know like yeah sure we'll move forward and honestly if you've got somebody in your group who is very particular about that stuff put them in charge with keeping yes. notes set up a google drive have them put the notes up there so you can refer to them as a gm i have uh i have one group i run with pretty regularly where we have a player who's pretty uh she's pretty regular with keeping notes and putting them out there for everyone so you know i can easily go back to it review the notes and be like oh that's what i did the last time we played okay i know what to do now you know and having a player like that can be a real asset rather than a hindrance absolutely so the most important thing with any any campaign any improvised situation which honestly all role-playing games are are partially an improv exercise. Like, we are making stuff up as we're playing mm -hmm. games. Everybody gets to choose kind of what they do to add to the story. And then there's a facilitator, of course, which is the whatever kind of game you're playing. It depends on the game. But, like, as long as everybody has the same shared vision, then everything's pretty cool. It's when people have dissonant vision, then, then things get problematic for the, for the group as a whole. So, I mean, as the, as the game master, the facilitator, the game manager, whatever you want to call that role, one of your primary jobs, especially when you're improvising, is to make sure that everybody is sort of on the same page together, seeing at least similar things, so that everybody's in the same ballpark right. for the game yeah. you're playing. 
which which goes back to as you said when you when you when you start the game make sure everybody knows what the genre is one thing i think i i i meant to mention when we were talking about characters is make sure all the characters are going to fit with that genre make sure all the characters at least have the potential to work together i played one masks game at a con several years ago where we had we had three different games being played and the gm didn't really corral that at the beginning you know we had three of us that were playing what is typically your masks young justice style game we had one player who was playing the dc murderverse uh <laughs> and trying to kill people and blow up buildings and then we had the guy on the far side of the table playing some creepy anime manga style i'm gonna hit on anything with breasts type of thing and the gm didn't really wrangle it at the beginning the way he should have so we have that jarring shift every time players interacted man that's that is a there's a problem with establishing tone <laughs> yep <laughs> yep uh. chris i saw that you wrote down some reference material in I did. the uh, the show notes. So let's talk about those. What are some some resources people can go to for this type of thing? I mean, I'll do the one that is not self-serving first. I mean, not that <laughs> not that the other one's self-serving, but uh it's sort of self-serving these days. So um Graham Walmsley wrote a book called Play Unsafe a long time ago, and it is uh, one of the better resources if you're a role player that wants to learn that wants to get better at improv in your games. Like it's a really good book with a bunch of skills inside of it and and exercises and thoughts about how to be an improv player and, yeah. and game master both those things john you want to talk about the second one because yeah. why not you <laughs> I'll, I'll do that it's self-serving but i don't mind uh so the second one uh which we talked about before and it's really a great resource is unframed the art of improvisation for game masters i do have an essay in here and i have art thanks credit in here for helping martin out with some stuff but it was originally done by uh, martin ralia of engine publishing and now engine publishing got subsumed into the encoded designs conglomerate Jam thing in the jigger. Uh, <laughs> but we, we have, uh, you know, it, it is a book of how many? 23 essays by a ton of people. Uh, names you'll actually recognize are, you know, Robin Laws, Jess Hartley, a lot of big names there, Jason Morningstar. But it's a lot of people writing about different small ideas on improvisation. That's really kind of the best sort of thing. Like, it's, it's hard to come out with a book on improvisation because Improvisation is picking and choosing what works best at the time and what techniques work best for your game, for your genre. So, you know, having it in this, this, um, you know, lots of small essays, you can kind of paw through, read one for like five minutes and be like, oh, that's part of the idea. I'm going to do that. So, yeah, so that, that is the self-serving one, but unframe the art of improvisation for game masters. And I would highly recommend it, even if I weren't inside the book. <laughs> Yeah, the, both of those are really good, and they're worth they're worth taking a look at, even if you even if you don't expect yourself to run a completely improvised game, you need to have improvisation skills as a GM, no matter what you're running, because your players will invariably go left when you expected them to go right. And I'll just say this, and it, it may sound a little bit, but I have totally bailed on games by. Younger GMs who were just like, and then this happens, and they're reading out of the book, like, completely, and it's like, all right, this is cool, but, like, the players are just raring to do something different than what's written down in the book, and the GM's just completely ignoring it. And I, and I think every GM has to get over 
that that kind of hump to get to that oh i can go far afield and do what i want to but i i just i've looked at some of those games that i found through meetups and gone uh, it's not worth my time right now to show up every tuesday for this game uh, like like I'll, I'll check in in a couple of months and see when when the gm has, has gotten it and then i'll see if yeah. i'm ready to jump into it but players are going to be making those types of decisions about games if you know you're not shining the spotlight on them yeah can i talk about like a couple more concepts. Sure. So we all, I mean, when we're prepping our games, we, we do some things like we come up with a plot or a story. We come up with a framework for surrounding that thing, like an investigation or a dungeon or whatever. And when like, we, we end up having characters and we kind of figure out what relationships are and things like that. And we have all these elements to our, to our games, like whatever the genre, the tone is and all the tropes that go with that. And then some of the possible uh, moments that we want to see in our, or like set pieces that we want to bring up in our game. You still do all that stuff when you improv a game. You just do it on the fly. So everything that you do when you prep for a game, you still do when you improv a game off the cuff. You just do it as you're going. So all these things are exactly the same. You're just making them up in the moment instead of making them up before you get to the table. (laughs) Yeah. So the the stuff that I think about, it's it's called, I, I call it foundational prep. I should probably write an article about it at some point. It'll probably be in this game mastering book that'll come out sometime next year, I believe, called uh, a misdirected mark game mastering book because we're going to do a book. But it's called foundational prep. It is all those elements that you kind of combine together before you play, which when you're improvising, you just do all those same things while you're playing. So understanding frameworks is a great idea. Like another thing that you can that, that you should get your head wrapped around. And by the way, frameworks are things like, oh, what is a What are the elements of a dungeon? Oh, what are the elements of an investigation? What are the elements of a heist? Like, what do you need for that stuff? Like, if you can understand those things, what are the elements of a, of a dramatic relationship map? If you understand those things, you can improvise them a lot faster and on the fly. And, and those are generally the frameworks that we use for the games that we play. So, uh, I mean, if you understand those concepts, that's another element that you can bring to your games much quicker as you're improvising. Yeah, absolutely. We should probably start getting out of here. John, any last words on improv? Don't be afraid of it. That, that's it. Just don't be afraid to come unprepared. Do with something you know. You know, <laughs> keep keep the monster manual nearby and just kind of like look through at the challenger and be like, "Cool, this would be a cool thing to happen next." And just kind of get yourself into it. Like there are tools out there to help you do it. Just just run at it hardcore and don't worry about if you you know hit a wall. Just keep moving past it. And pretty soon you'll be like, "Oh." Yeah, why did I ever prep anything for games? It's more fun to do it on the fly. <laughs> I, I still I still like my prep. I still like my prep. But don't be afraid to ignore the prep when your players are obviously not interested in it. Give your players what is going to keep them engaged. And Chris, any last words from you? If you want to practice this skill, do your normal prep. But then for some parts of it, just leave it out and be like, improvise here. Just write it in your notes. And yeah. then if you need to, Write down underneath what you're going to have to improvise so that you kind of give yourself a prompt. So there you go. Yada, 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 something, 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 put baby in a corner. Yes, <laughs> that, right? Exactly. So that, that way you're still doing some of your prep, which will give you a bunch of things to work off of, and then you'll have some spaces in there that you can practice your improvisation. Awesome. This show is funded by the Gnome Stew Patreon. You too can become a Patreon backer by following the Patreon link on the Gnome Stew website to the Gnome Stew Patreon. This ad is brought to you by... The unhappy player buffer coat, just like a dog's thunder coat that's like wearing a hug. It protects you from the players who are never happy and will always find something to complain about. 
Like the one guy who told me my game was a railroad right after I had made it up all on the fly because he wouldn't let the rest of the players follow the plot's breadcrumb trail. Hmm. If you're enjoying the Gnomecast, you'll probably like many of the other Misdirected Mark shows. Here's one to check out. Panthers talking games. Phil and Senda answer your questions about RPGs from the perspective of one-shots and campaigns. With some panda silliness. They're lovely. I love them so much. <laughs> they are. You can find all of us at gnomestew.com, at gnomestew on Twitter, and gnomestew on Facebook. Chris, where else can we find you on the internet? At the Light 101 on Twitter. Chris Nizak on Facebook. I pretty much accept most friend requests if you're some sort of gamer. <laughs> John. I am found wherever good John Arcadians are bartered or sold. It's a pretty unique name, so look it up and you will find me. What about you, Angela? Where can we find you online? You can find me on Twitter at orikes 13 and on Instagram on as orikes 13 Although Instagram I'm still figuring out and it's mostly just pictures of my cats. That's O-R-I-K-E-S-13, just to avoid yes. the sender issue with the... Uh... <laughs> That's way, way yeah. easier to spell than Idella Mithlin. Oh my god. Thank you, Angela. <laughs> So, John, do you think we can say we avoided the stew this week? I mean, we are the head gnome. Yeah, we are the head gnome. I think you and I did. Uh, Chris, I think we have to make it up as we go. I, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just going to barter and sell for some John Arcadians and use that as my, my proxy for the stew. Damn it, I knew I shouldn't have made myself a publicly traded commodity. Hi, Gnomecast listeners. Rob Abrazado here with a special announcement. The Indie Game Developer Network, or IGDN, is running its annual fundraiser to send first-time attendees to the Metatopia Game Design Conference in November. Gnome Stew, in association with Encoded Designs and Misdirected Mark Productions, that's the gem conglomerate thingamajigger that John mentioned during the show, is currently matching donations to the fund up to $250. Not only can you double the impact of your donations, but all matched donors will also receive a special discount coupon from Engine Publishing. Plus, the person donating the highest amount will get a coupon for a free digital copy of any title in the Encoded Designs library. You could get your very own copy of Unframed, the art of improvisation for game masters mentioned in the show. For all the details, check in the news section of misdirectedmark.com, check the news and announcements on the Misdirected Mark forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com, or find the link pinned on the Misdirected Mark Facebook page or at Misdirected Mark on Twitter. Thanks for helping the IGDN help others make better games, and thank you for listening.